0: Revolutions Per Minute is a weekly radio show from the New York City chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America, recorded live at WBAI 99.5 in Brooklyn every Wednesday at 9pm. RPM's about doing the work, the work to build a democratic socialist future. Each week hear the latest news, analysis and organizing experience from the minds and hearts of activists fighting every day in New York City. Join the movement at socialists.nyc.
1: Hey, what's up, New York City? This is Amy Wilson. You're listening to Revolutions Per Minute live on WBAI. We are a socialist radio show and podcast from members of the New York City Democratic Socialists of America. The Democratic Socialists of America is the largest socialist organization in the United States, with 95,000 members nationwide. New York City DSA is its biggest chapter. We are run by our 9,000-plus members and organizers who are working together to build democratic socialism in all five boroughs. Once again, my name is Amy Wilson. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm a member of DSA North Brooklyn. Considered on its own, the New York Police Department is in the top 10 largest armies in the world. Why? As working-class New Yorkers struggle to stay fed and safely housed, the NYPD enjoys nearly unlimited resources and sees no issue with using those resources to oppress and surveil the city's population. Tonight, we're speaking to Khalil from NYCDSA's Defund NYPD campaign, on why socialists' commitment to real public safety remains strong. We will be taking your calls on this issue in the middle of tonight's show, around 9.25pm tonight, so please get your questions ready. And in international news, capitalists and warmongers are pushing for further escalation in the Russia-Ukraine dispute. We'll hear from Gerard of the Democratic Socialists' International Committee on their recent statement opposing U.S. militarization and interventionism in Ukraine and Eastern Europe and calling for an end to NATO expansionism. But first, the headlines with Chris Carr.
0: Hello, I'm Chris Carr, and I'm here to bring you the headlines this week from the thorn. In local news, Governor Kathy Hochul has lifted the state's mask mandate Implemented in December during the initial Omicron surge in most public places, but Mayor Eric Adams has said he will keep the city's additional restrictions in place for now. New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy will eliminate a statewide school mask mandate for teachers and students in early March. The policy has been in place since schools reopened in fall 2020. MTA Daily ridership passed $3 million for the first time since the December COVID surge, although it still has not reached pre-surge levels and remains at around 55% of pre-pandemic levels. Mayor Adams testified before the state legislature on issues regarding the governor's proposed budget, using the occasion to, once again, push for changes to the 2019 bail reforms and other criminal justice reform measures passed in recent years. Roughly 3,000 city employees will lose their jobs as a result of the vaccine mandate, and the number is likely to grow, as the city still must process as many as 6,000 exemption requests. So far, the number represents only 1% of the city's workforce. The state comptroller found that nearly 2,000 teachers have left New York City's public schools since the pandemic began almost two years ago. Governor Hochul's proposed adjustment to the 421-A program, which largely preserves the tax breaks for private housing developers, is getting pushback from Housing Justice for All and some state legislators, although it has the support of the mayor. The Department of Social Services issued new payment standards for New York City's Rental Voucher Program, which has resulted in homeless people staying in shelters longer, further burdening New York taxpayers. In election news, the Working Families Party endorsed Jamani Williams for governor. State Senator Alessandra Biaggi announced plans to run for the newly drawn 3rd Congressional District, which now includes parts of the Bronx and Westchester, as well as Long Island, and is currently represented by Tom Swazi, who is giving up the seat to run for governor. Biagi has already been endorsed by U.S. Congressman Jamal Bowman of Westchester. Assembly member and deputy speaker, Kathy Nolan of Western Queens, plans to retire, creating a vacant seat in an area that has been friendly to DSA-endorsed candidates in recent years. Hugh Ma, founder of popular COVID vaccine database, TurboVax, ended his state assembly bid after redistricting removed his home from the area he aimed to represent. So those are the headlines brought to you by The Thorn Once again, I'm Chris Carr. Now back to the studio for tonight's show.
1: Thank you, Chris. The Thorn is an incredible weekly newsletter by New York City DSA's electoral working group covering local politics and radical activism. You can subscribe at thethorn.nyc. As the brutal winter of 2022 continues and economic pressures on New Yorkers continue to mount, our local army, the New York Police Department, continues to not have any trouble paying its bills. In the face of right-wing opposition, NYC-DSA recently voted to reaffirm its priority campaign to defund NYPD and fund real public safety. We will be taking your calls on this issue at the end of this segment in around 15 minutes, So please get ready to call in and ask us a question about our commitment to defunding the police. The number to dial will be 212-209-2877. And once again, the phones will be open at the end of this segment in around 15 minutes. So let's go ahead and roll that clip from comrade Khalil. Good evening, Khalil, and welcome back to Revolutions Per Minute. We're very excited to have you with us tonight. Happy to be here. So you are here as an organizer with our Defund NYPD campaign of NYC DSA. Talk to me a little bit about the type of organizing that campaign is doing right now. And tell me and our audience a little bit, how how is it going? It's been a while since you've been on our show.
2: Uh, Well, the Defund NYPD campaign has been doing a lot to build a base in the community. Um, Early on in the campaign, uh, a lot of work was centered around coalition building uh, with protest groups during the George Floyd uprising, and now we're pivoting to really uh, developing more connections um, in our communities um, with these community conversations that we've been doing. Um, Our first was at Kingsborough Houses with the Senator Jabari Brisport, and uh, we have more coming up.
1: For those who may not have heard about the community conversations, can you say a little bit more about uh, what those look like?
2: Yeah, so the community conversations um, is, uh, are our way for us to uh, cut through a lot of the noise about what defund and YPD means um, and also to get community members comfortable um, with the demand to defund, but also like... Uh, Build relationships, um, and so far they've been uh, very illuminating, um, both on our end in terms of what we hear from members of the community, uh, but also um, on their end. There's already in the couple that have been done. Uh, there, there has been like light bulbs that happened um, for folks in terms of like why police don't actually keep us safe and what real um, community safety could look like.
1: Well, it's wonderful to know that you and other defund comrades are are really out there um, in the streets, in public housing, in other places where working class people are gathered, really having these conversations with people because I think we all agree that's what we need to do, especially given the incredible escalation in pro-cop propaganda that we've seen, especially here in New York City in these past couple weeks. Um, And in response to that, the abolitionist movement has been the target of right-wing assaults from New York politicians like our not-so-illustrious mayor, Eric Adams, or Richie Torres, especially after the recent shooting of two NYPD officers in Harlem. And here at Revolutions Per Minute, we are aware of some attacks against uh, the socialist city councilwoman, Kristen Richardson Jordan, who represents that district. And, And she's really taken the brunt Um, in the wake of those shootings a few weeks ago. So can you talk a little bit about that escalation in pro-cop propaganda, or as we say, copaganda, from your perspective as an organizer who's working on this campaign and who is out there having conversations with everyday people as part of that organizing work?
2: Right, well, this was was predictable, right? Uh, We know that in a pandemic era where people's needs aren't being met, where you have thousands of New Yorkers on the street, um, when there's empty uh, apartments um, in the Upper East Side, and uh, there's something had to give. There's there, there, there is gonna erupt in the sorts of conflicts um, that we've seen that's led to violence. Um, but the reality is, we can't go backward. Um, we have to actually invest in the things that actually keep us safer. Um, and and so, the blueprint that the the Adams administration is planning to roll out will only create more violence and more tension in our communities. Um, and and it's and it's a and it's a miss a misinvestment when we should be putting money into solving the homeless crisis once and for all, making sure that there are jobs in working class communities, especially for our young people, uh, healthcare investments, there's all kinds of areas where uh, the city can deal with more investment and it shouldn't be in a massive expansion of NYPD officers on the beat and it shouldn't be in the name of uh, restoring uh, the anti-crime um, unit uh, that was dismantled for good reason. And it was very much because of the conflicts it was creating in our community.
1: And we were talking a little bit about this before we started um, our formal interview tonight, but you know, I think it's no mistake that Kristen Richardson Jordan is the figurehead that has been chosen as this sort of symbol of the so-called failed abolitionist movement or the failed defund the police movement. People are very quick to throw a label on, you know, our progress as a movement after a relatively short period of time and against intense opposition. But why do you think that is, you know, why is there this urge to sort of discredit the movement in this particular way?
2: I think it's because as, as we discuss as socialists, as abolitionists, you know, law enforcement is used uh, as, a, uh, as a weapon of class warfare um, and es- especially as a tool of, of white supremacist violence. And so a perfect symbol um, and foil for the folks who are beating the drum of law and order uh, is a black woman socialist in a place like Harlem. And so what's important for us is making sure that we, we push back against the erroneous uh, narratives that are being pushed out about that New York City defunded the police and that's why we're having all this crime. We didn't defund the police. We moved money around. Um, and the reality is that even in the mainstream media, uh, there's been acknowledgement that Crime rates are not close to what they were in the 90s, so it's 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 a it's a lack of real investigation about what are the things that are actually creating more vi- creating violence um, and 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 harm and and band uh, using Band-Aid solutions uh, like more law enforcement, uh, which again um, is a misallocation of resources.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So so that's really the crux of the defund NYPD campaign. And from what I understand, that's part of why we as the Democratic Socialists have chosen this and reaffirmed this as a priority for our organizing, because a lot of it comes down to it comes down to issues of you know, white supremacy, patriarchy, queer phobia, but also fundamentally about class and money and the way we allocate public resources. So uh, for those who may be engaging with this topic for the first time, we do reach about 30,000 New Yorkers each week here on Revolutions Permitted on WBAI. Um, Can you give a brief explanation or a spiel, if you will, as to why New York City DSA believes defunding the police is the path to real public safety?
2: So our overarching principles as a campaign is the understanding that justice for Black lives means investing in communities but here in New York City, schools, hospitals, housing, social services go underfunded while billions are spent on the NYPD. So this campaign is about a reassessment of our priorities as a city. Do you protect the rich and care to cops or invest in health, safety and the well-being of all New Yorkers? So we believe that this city, we can respond to crimes of poverty, mental health. Uh, and drug issues and other challenges with care and compassion and not cuffs and cages. Because the unfortunate thing that law folks may not realize is that policing isn't about safety, it's about control. The police protect the rich and their property, and they don't actually prevent violent crime from occurring, nor do they effectively mitigate the effects in its aftermath. They maintain inequality through racist harassment, surveillance, and outright brutality. The police may make us feel safe, but they actually make us less safe, not more.
1: Right on. So uh, I anticipate that some people may uh, have questions or comments about what you just put forward. And we will be taking calls in the studio tonight. So I hope that our live host can help clear that up. Your your general, your average DSA member is pretty good at, at giving the spiel, I find. Um, but since we do have you here now, Khalil, um, can you let our listeners know anything that's going on that they could get involved with in uh, with regard to the Defund NYPD campaign?
2: Uh, well, definitely uh, join the campaign. Uh, we have uh, power hours every Monday um, that folks can get involved with to again uh, uh, connect to strategizing and hear the latest updates on the campaign. Um, and we're, we're, we're planning to start uh, scaling up our tabling efforts that uh, we've been doing uh, a lot of last spring um, and some canvases with uh, some neighborhood um, safety gr- units potentially so uh, stay tuned.
1: Yes. And uh, Khalil, I also want to just ask your thoughts on our other big topic of tonight and if there's any connections that you see um, between these two stories that we're following here on Revolutions Per Minute, one being the international situation with Russia and Ukraine, and the other being the situation here in New York City with NYPD and its relationship to particularly the working class and particularly working class communities of color. I know that you're also interested in anti-war organizing. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, on this question tonight.
2: Uh, well, I think that there's, uh, there's so many connections between uh, local law enforcement um, and international security. Uh, and wh- whether that's the the specifics of you know, NYPD operating internationally um, in places like Tel Aviv um, through its counterterrorism bureau, uh, whether uh, that's, uh, you know, training uh, other law enforcement divisions abroad, you know, there's all that. But I think that um, with the situation um, in the ukraine um uh, I, I i think i think i think i think um it's, it's there's a very similar overlap in that you know it's trying to foment crisis and conflicts by throwing money by sending guns uh at a, a uh, an arms at a problem that requires diplomacy uh is very uh, analogous to uh, how we throw cops in cages um, instead of care at uh, problems at home.
1: Yeah, beautifully said. Beautifully said. And I think another connection is that you know it's it is the working class that becomes the you know base the work the domestic working class that becomes the base for wars of foreign aggression and who are expected to, to be the foot soldiers and the bodies on the front lines of decisions that are made by. Capitalists and politicians with state power—not to editorialize—but <laughs> I, 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 we've talked about this before, so I know this is something that you're you're interested in as well, and how the, the U.S. military preys on young people here in the United States.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the there's the argument always used of, oh, well, it's creating jobs for young people, but. Why do you need uh, to have a gun to be able to thrive and like, like reproduce your existence? You know, um, we can create work that is generative um, and actually keeps us safe um, um, instead of, you know, building up more of our military, building up a lo- more of our local law enforcement Thank you so much for having me, Amy.
3: Are you one of the thousands of people in New York City who saw their con ed electricity bills double or triple from last month? This is Lee Zishi, resident eco-socialist at Revolutions Per Minute, here to explain why utility bills are sky-high this month. Con-Ed and state regulators, the Public Service Commission, have claimed the unaffordable bills aren't their fault, but have been caused by nationally high gas prices driven by a cold winter and geopolitical tensions. However, Con-Ed leaves out that they have made massive profits off the build-out of gas infrastructure over the past 10 years, converting thousands of people from oil to gas under the now disproven claim that gas was cleaner. At the same time, their fossil fuel industry friends have been building facilities to export gas. And despite having banned the process of fracking for gas in 2014, New York built new frack gas power plants, making a large portion of our electricity that Con Ed delivers dependent on gas. Environmentalists have been arguing for over a decade that once more customers were hooked up to gas, and the fossil fuel industry began exporting it, that it would no longer be cheap. And that's exactly what has happened. If New York had spent the last 10 years building out publicly owned renewables instead of frack gas, we wouldn't be in this situation today. That's one of the reasons why New York City DSA has voted to make the Build Public Renewables Act a priority campaign this year. The Build Public Renewables Act would allow the state to build cheaper and more stable renewable energy, creating tens of thousands of good-paying union jobs. To learn more about the Build Public Renewables Act and what you can do about sky-high Con-Ed bills, visit bit.ly slash con-ed bill. And that's all lowercase. Again, that's bit.ly slash con-ed bill. This is Lee Zishi. Back to you, Desiree and Amy.
1: You just heard Khalil of New York City DSA's Racial Justice Working Group and the Defund NYPD campaign, as well as Lee Zishi with a public service announcement. Our phones are open now here in the studio, and we're looking forward to hearing your thoughts on what you just heard. You can call 212-209-2877. Once again, that's 212-209-2877 to ask us a question or make a comment about the topic, particularly of defunding NYPD. You are listening to Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI in New York City, broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. And today we're talking about ending war at home and abroad. And we do have a call on the line, so let's go ahead and get that caller live. Hi, you're live with Revolutions Hi, Per Minute.
4: It's Russ. Uh, I'd like to ask you a couple of questions. One is a practical question. Under the defund uh, police scenario, how would the, the ambush shooting of the two cops up on 155th Street, would have been? Would it, how would it have been handled? Would the uh, social worker or, or violence interrupter come in and gotten the sun out or gotten the 40-round magazine out? How would they have gotten that? And the second thing is, if there's a return to the use of capital punishment in reaction to this perceived increase in criminality, w- would you reconsider using the the absolutist nature of your rhetoric? And, uh, and the last thing is, do you think using ab- abolitionist rhetoric kind of characterizes your opposition as enslavers, and do you think that's manipulative and propagandistic in itself? So those three questions, uh, how would they... Ab- handled the ambush shooting, Uh, if if it's a return to capital punishment by the mass of the people, would you reconsider the the use of this uh, absolutist rhetoric? And the third thing is, is it counterproductive to characterize your your opposition as enslavers? So Those three things.
1: And slavers, interesting question. Well, thanks so much for calling, Russell. Um, I'll ask Max to disconnect you now so I can uh, answer your question. And I'll just remind our listeners that the phone lines are open and the number is 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. And I'm going to do my best to answer Russell's three-part question here live on the air. Um, First of all, with regard to specific instances of crime, Those are often used to propagandize the necessity of police. But I'll return to what our comrade Khalil said in my interview with him that you just heard, which is that policing is not about safety, it is about control. If you've ever been a victim of a crime, which I have, I've been the victim of multiple crimes here in New York City. And uh, earlier in my life, I did call the police when I was the victim of those crimes. The police were not able to help me. They were not able to uh, catch the person who did it in any of the cases. And in multiple of the cases, they actually re-traumatized me and placed the blame on me for creating the situation in which I was the victim of a crime. So although when we have these very sort of shocking instances, like a domestic situation that leads to the shooting of, of police officers, Uh, those can easily be used to drum up support for police funding. And in fact, that's what we see happening right now. But really what an abolitionist framework does is prevents that situation from occurring in the first place, right? We're talking about getting people stable housing, which is a huge factor in mental health and managing mental wellness. It's impossible or very difficult to stay on something like a regimen of psychological medications that you may need if you don't have a house, if you don't have a fridge, if you don't know where you're you're sleeping that night. So for people who are experiencing mental health issues or mental health crises, an abolitionist framework would support them before they experience an eruption into violence. And abolitionists see those eruptions of violence uh, as failures of the system of everybody involved Both the victim and the perpetrator, which is something that can be hard for people to get on board with because it requires empathy for people who uh, are committing crimes. But what abolitionists say is, you know, we're all working on a spectrum where all of us are on a spectrum of harm. Sometimes we're victims and sometimes we are the perpetrators. If you've ever heard the phrase, you know, there but for the grace of God go I, that's, I think, an abolitionist mindset. Uh, To answer your second question, Russell, I think you have an interesting imagination, uh, and I'd like to see you apply your imagination more toward positive possibilities, uh, but I'm not going to discuss capital punishment live on air on 99.5 FM. To answer your third question, I don't have a problem with, uh, with being frank about what our opposition is, and I think that's necessary in order to make change. Um, I think people have a misconception that organizing is about getting everybody to get along and have a nice conversation, Um, but organizing is about making material gains for the working class. We have a couple more minutes left in our uh, open phone section here, so I'll let you know our phone number again, 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. And I see uh, my great comrade Desiree Joy Frias has entered the studio. Desiree, are you here? Yes, I'm
5: still trying to collect my headphones. There's just been a tech storm today, Um, but I'm glad to be here uh, talking with you today.
1: Desiree, do you have any thoughts on um, the issue of defunding the police that you'd like to and feel ready to share with our audience?
5: Yeah, I think um, as someone who grew up in the South Bronx, I've really seen, um, you know, what the last 25 years of policing looks like in my community. Um, and I really think that it's been ineffective at the goals of reducing harm. Um, you know, I, I would love to live in a safe community where people don't have to resort to violence to meet their basic capitalist needs. Um, but that's not the reality that we live in. And I think that, you um, The police really gave it a shot uh, these last 60 years, and uh, they haven't really done that great of a job at it. Um, And I think that by defunding the police and refunding our communities, investing in the whole, imagine the possibilities, Russell, all the things we could invest in if we took this money. Um, I think that there's really an opportunity to make things better for the next 25
1: years and the 500 years to come. Absolutely. And I think you make a good point there that, you know, um, essentially throwing money at the police or continuing our, our current system is is more of the same. And those are the exact conditions that have produced um, the situation that we're in. Uh, I do see that we have a couple more calls on the line. Let's go to our next live caller. Hello. Hi, you're live with Revolutions Per Minute.
6: Oh, Okay. <laughs>
1: And we're discussing defunding NYPD. Uh, do you have a comment or question on that topic? Are you speaking to me? I am yes. speaking to you, yeah.
6: I have I have ex- experience with the police. I, I am a law-abiding resident in Queens. My son is a law-abiding resident too. The police unlawfully kidnapped me out of my house on July 16, 2019. How about 50 or 60 policemen just descend on my lawn and kidnap me out of my house. Wow. And the crime is so wicked that that, that they're they trying busily to cover it up until now. and And I don't even know if my son is alive or dead because they have told me that they have expired my son. They kidnap my son and circulate him in different medical facilities. He's a diabetic. And when I, each time I find him at a location, they mo- they kidnap him and take him over to White Plains on the 6th of, on the 5th, the 6th of December, 2019. Mm-hmm. Because I went to the health department about how they they were things they were doing at, at the, the hospital that they were using as a jail. I don't know if my son is dead or alive. Wow.
1: Wow. Yeah.
6: I I 100% you know. support defund the police. I have seen the police in action before, but it never affects me personally. This way, no, they take me this way. Absolutely, fund the police. They serve no purpose but to come over from Long Island over into the city and harass residents. And I know because, they ma'am, were
5: I me just around. no, ma'am, I I I just need to interject here and just you know I'm so so heartbroken to hear your story, um. And I, I think that, first of all, you do need uh, legal representation. I don't know what borough you live in, um, but I really hope that you're able to connect with your local defender's office um, and really have a legal advocate um, that can help you um, navigate the, the issues that you're facing right now. Um, you know, experiences that no parent should ever have to have with their children. Amy?
1: Amy? I couldn't say it better, Desiree. You know, caller, thank you so much for for calling in to share such a vulnerable personal experience. And, you know, my my heart goes out to you. It's it's hard to hear somebody um, who's been so directly affected by um, the uh, abuses of the police. But unfortunately, these stories are much more common than they should be. So we really appreciate um, your calling in tonight and um, wish you the best with everything.
5: Did we have a second caller, Matt? Daryl
7: McPherson, Bronx, New York.
5: Hey, Daryl, you're on WBAI 99.5, Revolutions Per Minute.
7: With- uh, I've got two things that I'd like to propose to you. One, the people who want to fund the police, and I think the New York City budget is around $6 billion a year. Is that close?
1: Yeah, that's, that's pretty right, right
7: on. Okay, so especially around gun violence there are no manufacturing plants in New York for either bullets or weapons that i'm aware of and yet the police are tasked with enforcing the law suggestion why doesn't the, why don't the police do their job you got 6 billion dollars and you're unable to an illegal an illegal I'm thinking of substance but an illegal
5: yeah thank you so much for that comment I'm so sorry to cut you off but we have to play a pre-recorded clip thank you so much for calling in Thanks for everybody who called in. We turn now to international news. In recent weeks, headlines have been nominated by news of the conflict in Donbas region. On January 31st, the Democratic Socialist International Committee released a statement opposing U.S. military intervention in the conflict. For more on that statement, let's go to Jack Devine.
8: Yo, it's good, New York. This is Jack Devine with uh, Gerard from the DSA International Committee. Thank you so much for joining us yeah absolutely. thank you for for having me on. So the situation is heating up in Eastern Europe, and the uh, military contractors here are getting very excited about the potential for uh, arms sales and armed conflict in Ukraine. So, Gerard, can you tell us what are the origins of the current conflict in the Ukraine?
9: yeah absolutely um so to give some background um i'm a member of nycdsa and the nt war working group here as well as the international committee um and over the past like few weeks now in the international committee we've been like doing um we've been like discussing this and like uh uh you know going over the you know the various sort of um you know aspects of the conflict uh, which has is really sort of like a complex uh situation that's just not been given the sort of uh you know detail in especially in the mainstream media as it should be uh it's been very sort of boiled down to like (laughs) the most like sensationalist uh aspects uh and like really sort of Uh, twisting this entire thing into into a sort of ridiculous narrative that like even like the Ukrainian president at at this point is like saying like this is just like like not at all what's happening right like this like these like narratives of like invasions of like imminent invasions uh, are just are just like not are yeah are like not at all doing uh, any sort of uh you know are not useful to like understanding the conflict and understanding really the sort of uh sort of complex origins of of this entire situation um so for yeah for some background and and this is sort of like a a long sort of complicated situation that really goes back you know decades so i can't really go over it you know in too much detail but i can i can sort of go over some of the main points and you know i would encourage people to also read the international committee uh statement and some of the sources in it which will go over sort of more in detail analysis on it uh than i can you know in this in this like kind of short segment um but yeah the so the sort of basis of of both the kind of immediate conflict of like these escalating tensions between Russia and Ukraine and the sort of intensifying, uh, you know, like militarization and interventionism uh, led by the US and NATO in Eastern Europe and Ukraine are are sort of traced to a couple of of key points. Um, And one of the main ones being the sort of, ongoing um, expansionism by nato over the past decades uh, from its kind of original 12 member states to currently uh, 30 members uh, with ukraine and georgia being like the the two sort of hotly contested uh, possible new additions Um, and this of course has um, fueled the sort of ongoing tension uh, in europe between uh, like the NATO states in in the West and in Russia, um, and and it, and it has done this really against sort of like well documented commitments by the West uh, to to uh, against NATO expansionism. Um, like Russia has drawn like a, from like you know from decades ago a very clear line against you know having this this like military alliance like coming up right up on its border so uh that's sort of the overall uh one of the overall sort of issues that has fueled the crisis um and it's 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 kind of tied into the fact that there's not really ever been any sort of like comprehensive mutually agreeable security measures incorporating russia into like a european security alliance in any way and since especially since 2014 when when the war in donbass started in eastern ukraine um this has really sort of fueled um a, like kind of an escalating uh, crisis which hasn't so far been able to be resolved um at the time in 2015 the Minsk Two agreement was signed by like a like um by russia ukraine france germany and and it was approved unanimously by the u.n security council so it was this kind of internationally agreed um diplomatic solution to ending the war in donbass to give uh the region it's it's requested autonomy and while keeping it incorporated within ukraine but and this was supposed to supposed to sort of end the sort of conflict between um ukraine uh and and the and like the eastern regions but it hasn't really panned out for a couple of reasons and this has sort of culminated uh into the current situation which um has um a lot of both ukrainian troops and russian troops sort of stationed in the region in a sort of uh standoff um i and and i wouldn't and i wouldn't say that this is like anything too like it's been hyped up a lot in the media but if if you look back over the past few years and if you've been keeping up with this especially since 2014 like every single year you will see these exact same stories about like imminent Russian invasions. Um just before now I was I was just like looking through uh through like previous media reports, and you can like literally see like every year there will be like an uh there will be like these stories about like Russian troops on Ukraine's border and like uh you know, like some imminent invasion uh you know about to like happen at any any moment. And of course, you know, it's it always like dissipates this this was also like a big media cycle uh just a couple of months ago it also kind of like you know didn't nothing like happened uh but now it's really been sort of um amped up to a sort of level that it hasn't before and uh and and that's really you know uh, the, and sort of amped up by the US, by the US and NATO to you know um really kind of escalate this crisis uh probably deliberately so actually um but yeah and and that, that's kind of the you know that's kind of the main sort of points um of course there's a lot a long sort of history regarding the history of like the post-soviet states and the the national identity of these kind of newly formed states since the dissolution the of the the USSR and and this has kind of caused um, you know, sort of ongoing conflicts in the region, especially among, like, minority rights within these new countries. Um, like, Donbass is not a specifically, like, a unique situation. Um, it's There's a couple of other uh, places as well in the region where there's been sort of, like, ongoing conflict like this between, you know, various sides, um, uh, but yeah i think I think that maybe is a sort of a quick overall overview of of some of these um underlying uh uh origins for the conflict yeah it's
8: it's a both a seemingly simple and complicated situation for the American left on the one hand there's the um you know Obvious position of completely being opposed to NATO and U.S. troop escalations in the regions. This sort of uh, media sensationalism of the corporate media, which is trying to, you know, push this narrative for which just kind of one drives up its viewers, but also is its deep connections with the Pentagon and military industrial complex, a number of analysts on the media are just uh, directly assets of either the CIA, um, the the Pentagon, other aspects of the defense industries. Uh, So there's there's that aspect of it in this kind of rejection of a call to war and the absolute absurdity of a war between the US and Russia uh, or NATO and Russia, which would be Utterly devastating and have apocalyptic consequences. So I think that's the sort of simple um, and clear stance. And then on the other side of things, you have a uh, situation between Russia and Ukraine where you have in Ukraine, you have um, neo Nazi forces with uh, significant power and, and being backed and funded uh, by the CIA. But then you also have, you know, a Russian government, which is no friend to the international left and is, in fact, a, a right wing government. And so how does the how does DSA's International Committee kind of uh, slice up the Gordian knot here? What are the demands of DSA's International Committee when it comes to um, this situation?
9: It's been a complex sort of discourse. Um... That we've been having over the past few weeks and we've really sort of analyzed what like other anti imperialist anti war orgs and leftist orgs in the US have been saying and what. um, What like coalitions have been forming and, and what others have been demanding um, the the so DSA has in our political platform already it's sort of outlined some some of these key components uh some yeah the sort of like main things that we and and pretty much every other anti war org in the country is demanding at this point is primarily ending uh NATO expansion um ending u s militarization and interventionism in ukraine and eastern europe uh at this point the u s has uh over i believe over seventy five thousand active troops deployed in Europe and something like close to 10,000 in eastern Europe and um that general region it actually just uh Biden just deployed about 3,000 new troops to the region um and as well as uh sending um ongoing like military aid in December the congress just passed a law um a bill uh, to send 200 million dollars in military aid which they've which they have did over the past few weeks and this is sort of in addition to uh like additional military aid in the 2022 ndaa for 300 million dollars as well as a new bill for 500 million dollars which is trying to be like rushed through the house right now so one of the 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 things that we've been focusing on is opposing this bill uh hr 6470 and s 3488 uh the defending ukraine sovereignty act uh which then you know these the, these sorts of increased uh militarization increased uh uh military aid just fuel like further uh escalations just kind of you know, worsen this crisis. It's been sort of a, an ongoing thing with the U.S. Over the past year, they've sent over six hundred fifty million in military aid, and over the past uh, since I think twenty fourteen, almost three billion in military aid. And this has been sort of one of the the other key components to this, which has worked really to undermine the the Minsk Agreement, which was supposed to to be this internationally agreed upon diplomatic solution. Um, so the, the other thing we're asking for is to reaffirm the Minsk agreement as the, as as like, sort of like the primary solution to end the war in Donbass and, and deescalate the crisis, uh, while sort of understanding the, the historical role the US has sort of played throughout, you know, since 2014 to really sort of undermine uh, an actual solution to this problem which could have could have been prevented it could have been solved since then if if there was sort of you know any sort of um indication for uh, an actual you know desire to to solve th- this this problem which um is a sort of whole separate uh, other you know problem that goes into the the idea of like how is this like us-led western imperialist uh global w- order like even supposed to like like how do you even like contend with that like what does it mean to actually you know implement any sort of like uh you know agreeable solutions in in in, in this in this case when this is like sort of a primary uh You know, desire of uh, of the U.S. to like expand its its uh, interest to uh, you know continue expanding NATO eastward um, and and continue to use NATO as as a mechanism really for um, for the sort of like interventions and wars that it has been involved in and its members have been involved in, including like in uh, Yugoslavia and Afghanistan and, and Libya. Um, so, um, those are sort of the main, the main points of, I think, ending NATO expansionism is something really that, at this point, like, everybody, including, like, very sort of mainstream, um, figures are, like, calling for, um, and, and sort of addressing the, you know, the, the ongoing U.S. militarization in the region and preventing any sort of like further escalations um that's that's been sort of what this uh national coalition of like over 100 anti-war organizations have sort of uh come together to to demand and there's been like you know like protests and rallies um over the past week on february 5th there was a large uh day of action i think around like over 70 rallies across the country. um, People demanding an end to US NATO escalations. Um, And we've been working in the IC to try to push this out to chapters, to get people informed on it, to have people be involved with this coalition. And to to really sort of understand the, the role that the US has played in all of this, which is almost completely like completely ignored in in any sort of like mainstream media narratives um everything is sort of just like um uh, you know spun into this idea that like just russia is just like invading like every country <laughs> um and you know without understanding without like an analysis understanding the historical role of the us and nato in in this entire conflict there you know we're we're just going to be kind of stuck in this like ongoing crisis which you know if you look at 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 like articles from 2014 you will see it's like the exact you know the exact same thing people back then were saying the exact same thing that nato expansionism has to end like the us cannot be like stationing active troops in ukraine and like deploying like advanced uh weapon system on the ukrainian border um and and since then, really, like eight years later, we're still like sort of in the same in the same place. So um, I think it's important to sort of deconstruct this issue and sort of analyze it from a perspective that's, you know, just not going to, you know, you're not going to find this on like, you know, <laughs> all, all of these like mainstream media outlets. Uh,
8: Absolutely, especially in the way that the continuing escalation and uh, expansion of NATO in the region only further empowers the elements of the, the nationalistic right in both Ukraine and in Russia to, to further um, either escalate tensions or kind of create at least this uh, narrative where invasion is happening when in reality what the, the real problem um in russia as in the united states is the power of capital and that is what needs to be confronted uh, moving forward i just want to thank you so much uh gerard for joining us on revolutions for a minute
9: yeah absolutely thank you for for having me on and thank you for um doing this segment i think it's you know important for people to 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 really uh you know engage with these sort of complex topics in in a way that you know they're just unfortunately most people won't through you know the sort of regular mainstream media uh, outlets so yeah thank you for
8: having me on thank you for coming on the show
5: my apologies to our last caller that i misread the time and we had to go to our interview from earlier today we hope that you can continue the conversation with us on twitter at nycrpm or via email at revolutionsperminute at gmail.com and that you can call in again to our next episode You just heard from Gerard of TSA's International Committee on their recent statement opposing U.S. intervention and militarization in Ukraine. We will have a link to that statement in English, Russian, and Ukrainian in our show notes for tonight, and we encourage you to read it for yourself.
1: That's all the time we have for tonight. Thank you so much for listening to Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI in New York City, broadcasting at 99.5 FM. I'm Amy Wilson. I'm Desiree Joy Frias, wishing peace and good health to
5: all of the international working class. See you next week. Good night.